3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 8th of November, 7am. Claudia, good morning. Good morning, Pat. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. And Sonera, welcome back. Yes, I'm finally back after doing a bit of um, shifting here and there. Um, So yeah, drove here today. It was a bit stressful, but that was fine. Um, how how? Uh, but I've been listening to the show. I've been tuning in, and it was um, great so far. Good to know, Sarah. That's always that's and always even better good. this week because we've got you here in the studio. Yeah, I know. I know. That's, <laughs> what, that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, everyone get in the studio. You know, that's what it's all about. Get a, get amongst it. So it's good. Now Pat is dying to share with <laughs> listeners uh, his. Reflections on yesterday's horse race. Oh yeah, that that thing, you know, you know, the thing they run around the, the that that racetrack that got protected by that uh, wall, cloudy, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, for listeners out there, my alternative version of the race that uh, stops the nation, apparently, which it only stops, I think, a quarter of the nation, if you if you looked at the statistics on it. Um, I'm thinking, hear me out, Sonera. We have a hundred meter sprint with the best athletes across the world. And you just get everyone, non-binary. Um, you get uh, everyone, like just get everyone that's the best in the in the best version of themselves. So you have Usain Bolt up against LeBron James. You know, you get even get like the best artists. Just imagine, Claudia, that would stop the nation. Taylor Swift, even get even if the Beatles were like you know fit and able. <laughs> just imagine Paul McCartney just bolting through. It'd be that'd be and you awesome. Pat. Yes, and just have me there. Like you don't even have to have me running. I just be there. But all I'm saying that would be that would now that would make the day. I think more incredible. And no horses. No horses. And you know what you can do? No whips. No whips. And you know what you can do? The jockeys, they can be the ones running the three thousand two hundred meters. In all seriousness, it's um, it, it it's uh, it's something I keep thinking. Like you know, the Olympics hundred meter mm. sprint. Everyone wants to watch that. So surely we can implement something. You know, the stall gift, that actually kind of stops the nation sometimes because if, if someone big gets up, it's normally, you know, it's normally reported across the country. So it's just an idea for those, you know, those people thinking an alternative to the Melbourne Cup, you know, we can still have all the betting and all the fun about it. You could even can, put a moat yes, around and yeah, have a swim. And a swim I as mean, well. where would it stop her? I know. I'm, I'm not completely sold, but it's better than what we've got so yes, far. Yes, definitely, definitely. And, and those, and those, you know, who had to bet on day, you make sure you gamble responsibly and also... You, you make sure the food and drink are cheap as well, Cloudy. You know, you try and mm. make it as um, family friendly as possible. That's the key thing to it. Absolutely. And but enough uh, about that. We've got head- we've got bigger things on, which is headlines, Claudia. So give us what is the news making this morning? 
The United Nations Special Rapporteur for Palestinian Human Rights, Francesca Albanese, arrives in Australia tomorrow for a one-week visit organised by the Australian Friends of Palestine Association. Ms Albanese will deliver the Association's annual Edward Said Memorial Lecture and address the National Press Club on why previous approaches in Israel and Palestine have failed and why self-determination and human rights must form the basis for a new way forward. Her visit comes as the death toll among Palestinians in Gaza reaches 10,000 and the humanitarian crisis continues. UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, has described the situation in Gaza as a tragedy of colossal proportions. And in Melbourne, a group of approximately 15,000 gathered on Saturday at another mass rally supporting Palestine. Greens leader Adam Bant mourned the loss of lives on both sides of the conflict while reportedly renouncing Israel's actions as a war crime. Between 50 to 100 pro-Palestine protesters blocked a Flemington intersection just metres from an entrance to the race course ahead of yesterday's Melbourne Cup. According to The Age, the protesters parked a graffiti-covered van across the road and deflated its tyres. Video footage showed a protester on top of the van holding a lit flame. The van had the words, cease fire now, on it. A number of protesters were involved in incidents with police, including three being pepper sprayed and a passing bystander claiming he was physically mishandled. Thank you for that, Claudia. And now the Reserve, the Reserve Bank announced an interest rate rise where the crash Sorry, the Reserve Bank has announced an interest rate rise where the cash rate has been lifted from 4.10% to 4.35% in a bid to tackle high levels of inflation. The interest rate hike was announced on Cup Day yesterday and it is the highest it's been in 12 years, as well as being the central bank's 13th rate rise since May last year. The increase to the cash rate will add roughly $100 to monthly repayments for a standard mortgage of about 600000 The Australian Co Council of Social Service, also known as ACOS, warns that the interest rate will ri will uh, warns that the interest rate rise will sacrifice jobs and impact people on lower in incomes. The RBA expects the unemployment rate to rise by 4.25%, which means that 100,000 people will be out of paid work since the interest rate hikes last year. ACOS CEO Cassandra Goldie says that the government should help the RBA tackle inflation by working with states and territories to curb soaring rents and take additional measures to bring down energy bills. And in breaking news, uh, a major Optus outage is affecting customers across Australia this morning and the Melbourne train network. According to Downtector, the outage started around 4am with almost 8,000 outages reported after 6am. Metro reported issues with the transport network due to communication issues at 4am this morning via social media. Metro have said all train services have resumed across the network, though major delays to all lines are expected. Federal Home Affairs Minister Clara Neal released a statement this morning saying the government is seeking information from Optus on the major outage. And we will keep you updated through the morning with that situation for those affected. And those are all your headlines. 
Absolutely. Um, and this morning's show, we're going to be starting off with a segment uh, relating to the cup, uh, the NUP to the uh, cup campaign, uh, which um, will give us an alternative view to how the, the cup can be run, perhaps not your view, <laughs> Pat. <laughs> and this will be followed by um, our guest, Troy West from the Salvation Army, who'll be talking to us about the Money Care Program, which helps uh, financially vulnerable people uh, get a, a hand up. Um, that segment will be followed by uh, a rundown on what's going to be happening for Slut Walk this year on the 25th of November, so coming up next Saturday week. And finally, to wrap up the show, Pat, you've got a very timely interview on a quite a sad topic, you could yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Deadly Norms of Car Use with the lecturer in Planning and Human Geography at La Trobe University in Julia Gilbert. Uh, she released an article regarding it only a few days before the tragic uh, accident at uh, Dalesford. So it's very timely indeed, and um, yeah, so listeners, I, I highly recommend it. Make sure you keep your dial on 855am this morning, because we've got all the all the big issues discussing that. Well, thank you, Patrick. So, first of all, um, we'll be hearing about um, NUP to the Cup, which is very topical, since yesterday most of us had a day out for the quote-unquote, uh, the race that stopped a nation. And that race is obviously the Melbourne Cup, which has been an annual tradition since the 1860s. However, what was once considered a favourite pastime has been seeing a fall in popularity among the public. In recent years, animal welfare, uh, animal welfare activists have brought um, the dark side of the Melbourne Cup to light bringing awareness for issues like animal cruelty and gambling addiction. So now we're going to listen to a conversation with Elio Silotto about his introduction to animal activism and the highly successful Not to the Cup campaign. Elio is also from the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and has been a long-time animal activist. This conversation was aired on an episode of Freedom of Species at 3CR last month. Let's take a listen. Elio has been involved in animal rights for the last 33 years, having initially focused on factory farming for the first 18 years, and he chose a different path after a chance visit to a knackery in 2005 that led to the formation of the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. For the last 15 years, he, his now single focus has been on animal advocacy for all racehorses before, during and after their racing careers. His two main reasons for this change were, number one, horse racing was virtually untouched by the animal rights movement at the time and he felt that racehorses needed a voice. And number two, in general, people, need, people can more easily empathise with horses than our other traditional farm animals and therefore this campaign could serve as a bridge that attracts more people towards a more compassionate and animal-friendly lifestyle. Welcome to the show, Elio. Thank you. Yeah, Excellent. Welcome. It's great to have you here. So, wow, that's a that's a pretty, uh, you know, pretty illustrious animal activist uh, career you have there. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into activism and, and um, you know, what your focus was before you had, uh, before you formed the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses, which, by the way, will we'll shorten to CPR for everyone's knowledge? <laughs> um, yeah, look, for me, uh, my journey started when I read Peter Singer's book, um, Animal Liberation, and anyone that reads that, I don't know how you can not become vegan after reading the first 40 pages as I did. It just made so much sense. So I basically instantly became vegetarian back in about 1987, 88. And, um, and then in 1989, I, I was, a friend asked me to go parachuting uh, up in Korowa. Um, at the time, you, you just jumped by yourself. It wasn't like you do today. It was quite daunting <laughs> throwing yourself out of a plane. But what struck me on my first jump was all these sheds um, below me that ended up being um, piggery sheds. And it was, at the time, the biggest piggery in the Southern Hemisphere. So I decided to find out a bit more about it while I was there and found many, many horror, horror stories about what they, how they were treating the pigs. And that led to me feeling like I needed to do something about this. So I got a job there. And, um, wow. And, so you, uh, just to clarify, you got a job at the piggery? Yeah. Oh, okay. And so I worked there undercover um, for, for two and a half months and then went to another piggery for a couple of, uh, for a couple of weeks. Um, and that led to um, exposing some of the cruelty that was happening at that time. But back then it was very different to today. Um, the media wasn't as interested and we don't have the pinhole cameras that we have today. Yeah. So it, um, anyway, that's how my journey started and got can involved. I, can I ask on that though quickly? Like you said like two months or a couple of weeks. Like what's the turnover like with people there? Like did that look, would that look suspicious or was that pretty normal? Um, no, not at all. I, I think that they have a huge turnover of, of staff right. in these kind of places. Uh, they're horrendous conditions. Like yeah. if you've got any compassion for the animals there you know like I struggled to stay there for the time I was there um, but at least I felt like I was there for a reason mm. and tried to bring about some change while I was working in the place um, but it was just it you know like anyone that cared about animals just wouldn't find themselves in working in a place like that yeah um but, but it, it was, wasn't too hard to sort of get a job at another one after leaving so soon. Like that wasn't no, frowned upon. No, or, no, I so. basically went from one to the other. The first yeah. place recommended me to the second oh, piggery wow. that I, we were going to investigate. And I virtually went from Friday in one place to next Monday in, in, in the other <laughs> piggery. Um, yeah, so look, that was a really interesting and difficult time. That was a kind of a pretty in-your-face introduction to, mm. to animal rights. Um, but that led me to working with Animal Liberation Victoria for, for a long, long time um, and involved in their uh, factory farming campaigns and doing investigations and rescues that was just almost on a weekly basis. Um, their open rescues were very successful in exposing the cruelty happening in chicken sheds and, and piggeries and rabbit farms as well. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to, to Patty, Mark, for the work that she did in, in bringing people together and exposing the cruelty that, you know, is still out there today. Yeah. At least there's a lot more awareness about it. And, um, you know, I, I can see the day where it will come to an end. Um, so um, huge, you know, thank you to all the people that are involved. I remember 
going to one piggery one night. It was about three in the morning and we were at this piggery. It was pouring with rain and we were all soaked um, waiting to get into this shed and I'm thinking, God, we must be the only people in the world that are doing anything like this at that particular moment. Um, mm. Very different time back then. Now I go to bed at night and I happily... Um, feel really good about the fact that I know that there's lots of people out there doing the same thing around the world. Mm. So it does give me hope that um, yeah. we'll bring this to an end one day. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So how? So you've given us a bit of a background of how you got into animal activism in general. Can you give us um, some background about your introduction to or, or how you got into focusing your animal advocacy on uh, horses, in particular racehorses? Yeah, well, it was uh, a night that we were going to do a, a, um, a rabbit farm investigation. And earlier that day, we received a phone call from a lady who had, which I took, who told me about some horses that were left in a paddock that looked malnourished and asked us if we could do something. The RSPCA weren't interested in going out there. So we went out there that night and um, what we found out was that this place was in fact a knackery and there were two uh, pens of approximately 30-odd horses um, jam-packed in there and they were mainly ra- mainly racehorses that could easily you could identify by their brands fortunately we had um, a young lady there who who knew about horse racing and, and identified them and mm. and for me that was when CPR was conceived really because I couldn't leave that pen without at least um, saying to myself that I had to do, would have to do something about this so we formed a small team and investigated that particular knackery whilst at the same time we were doing our own research online about the racing industry and the problems with the racing industry. And it wasn't hard to find out that you know this is an industry that fundamentally exploits all their horses for financial gain, that, that horses routinely sustain injuries as a result of being pushed way too far, too often and, and way too young. Um, and so we, we decided that after two years of research that we would form CPR and, and try to make the racing industry accountable. Mm. Uh, so in 2008 we formed CPR. Um, initially we, our focus was jumps racing. We felt like we had to get the general public on side because at the time horse racing was still generally as ex- it was accepted as a, yeah. as, a, as a form of entertainment even amongst um, animal activists. I confess that I went to the races a few times before, uh, even after becoming vegetarian, much to, you know, um, my shame now. But um, but in a way, it enabled me to understand how people can still go to the races and have that cognitive dissonance about what they're really supporting by going there. So when you go to the races, especially when you're seeing people making a living out of it, how they are blind to what we see, which is fundamentally animal cruelty. Um, so, yeah, so we started the Jumps Racing campaign and, and that was quite successful. We we managed to get it banned for like seven weeks mm. um, in 2009 when they announced because there was a, a spate of deaths and, and there was so much bad publicity about Jumps Racing that they decided to ban it. Unfortunately, seven weeks later, they did a turnaround uh, on that decision because... Um, there was so many people in the industry that saw this decision as the thin end of the wedge that eventually we'd come after mm. two-year-old racing and, and the whip and, and mm. the wastage um, in horse racing, which is basically the horses that are 
routinely retired and then killed because there aren't homes out there. And they were absolutely right. It was the thin end of the wedge. And, and mm. um, so after they, t- they, they did a turnaround on that decision, we just decided we're going to go the whole industry now and expose the numbers of horses that have been killed. We were, we were going to various knackeries and, and visiting slaughterhouse, two slaughterhouses. One was in South Australia and the other one was in Queensland. And um, so we decided to, make, to to expose the industry for what it is, and, and that is one that purports to love their horses, yet they don't even have a retirement plan for their horses. To this day, they all claim they they have retirement plans, but they don't tell us about the numbers. Um, and the numbers that we're being told, uh, are, you know, 30 to 40 in each state, which is just a drop in the ocean, really. Mm. Mm. So it's um, it's been an interesting journey and um, one that, you know, we need to keep fighting for and, and keep exposing the industry for um, how it treats its horses, that um, they keep saying that they love them. Um, we kept on saying that, you know, they're, they're killing uh, as many horses as they're producing each year because um, the numbers... Where of else ho- do they go? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, the math doesn't math. Yeah. yeah. The numbers of horses that are, that are born each year... Um, uh, has to be the number of horses that leave the industry because the numbers of horses competing has not been increasing. Yeah, but what we have seen is a, is a decrease in the number of horses which are actually born into the industry. It used to be as high as eighteen and a half thousand. Now it's down to about eleven and a half, twelve thousand. So that's good that their numbers are reducing, which means less horses are suffering. Mm. And that's been a steady decline since about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. And do you think that's accurate, or is that just maybe them trying to gloss over how many they're killing? I think in um, perhaps about five years ago, we saw a, a drop that was more significant than in the previous years. And I think that they amended their rules of racing to allow them more time to decide if the horse um, was a viable option so that they didn't have to register the horse immediately. Right. And I think that probably led to some horses being deemed as... Um, uh, dying at birth, um, or they call it a slip, or whatever, that so that they aren't accounted for registered. in the official yeah. figures. Yeah. Um, we we did a study on the horses that went through the Magic Million sales that came out last year, and in these sales, there were five horses in there that, if you look up their records, five of them uh, were, were, were um, noted as um, not being born that they. <laughs> That they were aborted mm. or whatever, yeah. so uh, or died at birth, and yet these were the horses that were at the sales that weren't sold; they were passed in. So there's definitely some dodgy figures. Some fudging. It's a combination of the, of the two, yeah, by the sounds yeah. of it. They're reducing, but they're also trying to make it look better than it is. Absolutely, and I think yeah. you can't trust the racing industry because they know that um, every horse that um, they can hide is is one less horse that the that animal activists can claim is, you know, hasn't been mm-hmm. rehomed, um, and it's yeah, it's, it's they've got a they've got a huge problem because um, they can hide it so much, and then eventually we've got people within the industry now that um, tell us about horses that have uh, been injured yeah. on the racetrack, um, and they know have, have been euthanized, and then we have to then follow up, and as a result of that, um, you know, we're out. Death Watch this year has has 168 horses being recorded as being killed on the racetrack. So on the actual racetrack. On the racetrack, or shortly after, as from a result a of their injuries injury. yeah. from a racetrack injuries, 
and um, and and that's been as a result of industry people who are actually supporting what we're doing because they're also disgusted by um, you know the routine killing and exploitation of these animals and keeping it under the rug sort of thing exactly and and look there's no I have no doubt that there's many many good people in the racing industry that have good hearts um, but unfortunately many of them are, are oblivious to the reality of how they're treating their horses they see it through they see their horses as as potential money earners, um, first yeah. and foremost. And, um, I mean, I, I get it to a certain point, but anyone that truly loves their horse should not be involving their horse in, in horse racing in any way. Well, they become a bit invested, I think, like not just like everything financially, personally, like it becomes their identity. It becomes sort of what they mm. consider that they're, for some of them, it's their family, like similar that we see with farming and farming communities. Like there's understandable reasons why there's that cognitive dissonance and they'll just keep sort of, jumping through those mental hoops to make it seem like what they're doing is okay yeah. even if they're faced with the reality of what they're doing every day they'll just minimize mm. that because to really acknowledge it is too difficult to go well what my whole career has been yeah. exploiting horses my whole career is my family's career has been based on you know this like yeah. they just don't want to admit that yeah exactly i mean we've had trainers contact us some of them have rung me personally um, some have contacted us via email telling us um, good on us for doing what we're doing and um, mm. some of them said that they're not they've only got one or two horses left or they're going to get they're going to rehome all their horses and they're getting out of the industry yeah wow because interesting because at the end of the day um, it's it's only the the really um, well-to-do trainers that are making real money out of it mm. a lot of them are, are, are tradespeople they're electricians and plumbers and they do this thing on the side and they might have two, three, four, five horses, and um, they're hoping to, you know, buy the the next Maccabi Diva or Black Caviar. And the, the the reality is that there's almost no chance of that of that happening. It's gambling as much as punters are gambling. Absolutely, really. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so a lot of them say that they're losing money. They haven't made any money out of the racing industry, and yeah. we're seeing a decline in the numbers of trainers as well, which is really good to see. Um, so I think the overall industry is in decline, um, mm. as many people in the industry realise that, you know, it's just not fair to the horses, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. um, no. And it's very difficult to make money out of horse racing, unless you're a, one of the big trainers. Yeah. And you speak about that decline. Um, I mean, I think people really don't understand just how little people knew about horses in horse racing and how you know how few activists had any understanding of that and then just looking at from a cultural you know a cultural point of view um years back you know multiple workplaces that i worked at had uh sweepstakes for the cup uh if we were working on the day you know everyone would stop and watch the race yep, some people too. would even get dressed up yeah I don't see that anymore. In fact, I barely hear any conversation about there's no mm. sweepstakes, there's no stopping for the cup, there's no really even any conversation in a lot of the, the places that I've worked at over the last maybe 10 years or so. Um, so there's definitely a cultural change and that raising of awareness, I think, in, in you know, in a lot of a lot of that sense is actually the, the massive work that CPR has done, uh, you know, hit the ground running, uh, caused this awareness. And, and I think, um, you know, CPR has had such an impact on raising awareness uh, of racehorses and their plight. And I think that's an absolute, you know, wonderful mm. thing. And that was Elio Salotto speaking on the free uh, on freedom of species about 
animal cruelty in horse racing and the Nup to the Cup campaign, as well as CPR. Freedom of Species airs every Sunday from 1pm to 2pm here at 3CR. More information about animal activism will also be on our show notes later today. We will now listen to a track. This is Horses by Suicide Swats.
Music from the wetlands on the banks of the Yarra River in Elphington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kutcher Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats, food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elphington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it? More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on now. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between now and November the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. 
Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are. At home, work, driving. On public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Music from the wetlands on the banks of the Yarra River in Elphington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kutcher Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats. Food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elphington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it? More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast with Sinera, Claudia and Patrick and those tracks were 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton and earlier and earlier we played Horses by Suicide Swans. And um, now we'll be going to Claudia. Thanks, Sinera. Now, listeners caught in the stranglehold of the ongoing cost of living crisis will know that financial stress is not only felt around the wallet. Recent research by the Salvation Army shows that financial stress impacts physical health, emotional health and day-to-day functioning. Troy West is the State Manager of a Salvation Army program which provides free financial counselling support to Australians with financial worries. The program is called Money Care and each year it reaches over 12,000 people. Troy jo- joins us now to tell us about the program and why it can help. Good morning, Troy, and welcome to breakfast. Good morning, Claudia, and thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure. So tell us what is Money Care and why was it established? Well, effectively, Money Care is a, a free service available to anyone who's experiencing financial distress. And the service is provided to support community members who might be experiencing um, stresses with finances, um, who may not have capacity to manage their finances themselves. And Financial Council is providing information, advice, and advocacy to support community members around making informed decisions. And there was a real gap in that space of supporting community members and financial counselling really was established, uh, sorry, Money Care was established uh, in the 1970s uh, back in uh, New South Wales. And it's just evolved since then to become what it is today, which is Money Care. And it's a service where as financial counsellors, we support the community members in making financial decisions and supporting them around um, managing the the realm of finance. And it's across the board from your, your lenders, your, your telcos, and also your utility providers, as well as some of the other fringe um, entities around as well. So can you take us through how the service works in practice? Uh, Do people call you? Do they come in for a meeting? Yep. Uh, Financial counsellors provide us all three services of face-to-face meetings. So community members can come in and see financial counsellors on site or they can engage in formats such as Teams or Zoom. Um, and also over the phone. So it really comes down to the community member's preference as to how we deliver that service. And we... Go ahead. Sorry, and and in terms of how the the service is delivered, a community member will come in and and seek support, but, um, and what we do is we seek to understand um, what their situation is, look at all their debts, look at all their expenses, um, and ultimately then determine whether or not someone's, a community member's been sold a product or signed up to a loan that might be unsuitable, help someone if they're, help them understand what their entitlements are under grants and if they're eligible, 
advise and assist with debt problems or disputes with banks, utility providers and, and tel- telcos. Um, for those community members who are really struggling or just may not have that capacity at that time to, to take on some of those um, interactions with creditors, etc., we will advocate on their behalf with the banks and you know, and support them through that process. But also we will make referrals to other professionals where appropriate, where um, other community services such as legal services, therapeutic services or family violence services might be um, needed in that uh, level of support for them. But we also provide information around consumer rights. And the main thing around financial counselling is it's actually... Your community uh, member led, so they actually inform us how they want to proceed, and we actually provide the options and then guide them through that process. So they're in control of how they manage their situation, and we support them through that. And we know that poverty and financial stress feeds other social problems. Can you speak a little to the intersectional aspects of financial worry and the way you approach this in in the services? Financial worry, it leads, mental health is such a a debilitating um, impact, has a debilitating impact on our communities. It leads to isolation, um, you know, um, often poor decision making and and also then potentially has the impact of you know, family breakdowns and relationship breakdowns and then, you know, isolation in terms of individual community members' interaction with the broader community. And when it gets into that space, it's a long journey back. And so financial counsellors will work on the fundamentals around the financial aspects and then bring in the appropriate resources to support them, whether it's with uh, linking them with a GP for a mental health plan or you know, um, psychological assistance or could be, you know, linking them with other services around family violence, etc. So this is, the the financial counselling is just part of the conduit or one of the conduits around linking them with other supports. And we also know from our own personal experiences that talking about uh, personal distress is a a really difficult thing. what is the role of compassion in the process, both from the perspective of the counsellors who are providing help um, and providing the service, but also in, in the sense of the self-care that we need to um, give ourselves permission to accept when we're having a tough time? Absolutely. When community members do present and for support and assistance often it's they're in such a state of despair that they can't see beyond their current situation and and I think when a financial counsellor you know engages we we identify that and we see that and our support is to um, identify with them where they're at and support them through the process and, and know that they're not alone. And, but also as a financial counsellor, 
if you see many of these cases back to back, there's also that risk of um, vicarious trauma. And so self-care is absolutely critical, not only for the consumer or the community member, but also for financial counsellors. As, as we guide community members from the current state of financial distress and work with them to uh, you know, a, a better financial position. And finally, um, who can access the services? Is there a, a threshold and is there a cost involved in accessing the services? Badia, thank you for asking this question because this is absolutely um, important that everyone needs to know that in order to access a financial counsellor, there is no restrictions based on income, visa status or residency status. Uh, we know that Centrelink, it's an existence, it's not a lifestyle. Um, so it's available to everyone from individuals to everyday families you know, with double incomes and experiencing you know, mortgage distress. The high cost of living and the higher interest rates and housing insecurity, that at the moment is one of the key issues that we're working through with many of our community members who engage in our service. And I encourage anyone who's experiencing financial distress to please reach out to financial counsellors as you know, we are trained to provide specialist uh, you know, support in a range of issues from you know, credit law, consumer law, uh, debt, debt reinforcement, family violence, economic abuse, and that includes elder abuse, um, gambling and related harm, not only for the gambler, but also family members. There's also bankruptcy, fines and infringements, external dispute resolution schemes such as VCAT, Ombudsman and APCA. Um, and more prevalent at this moment is, is concerns around disasters, so with the fires and floods we've seen in recent times, but also small business issues. So if community members have got small business um, debts and they're seeking support, financial Financial counselling services can provide uh, support in that space as well. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is financial counselling is always 100% free. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your program uh, with us. And uh, listeners can contact the Salvation Army on 13 Salvos, 137258, or visit salvationarmy.org.au are there any other um, specific contact details that we need to give our listeners who might be uh, considering contacting you indeed claudia we do have our money care financial counseling service line and the number is 1800 722 363 thank you very much and we'll put that number on our show notes and uh, also a note for listeners, Anti-Poverty Week will be kicking off next Wednesday, November the 15th, with events and resources available at antipovertyweek.org.au. And if you or anyone you know needs help, you can contact one of the services uh, that is there uh, in addition to the Salvation Army and that includes Lifeline 131114, Beyond Blue 1300 224636, 
the National Debt Helpline 1800 007 007 and of course in an emergency please call triple zero. That was Troy West from the Salvation Army talking about Money Care, a free financial wellbeing program helping Australians. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on now. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between now and November the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. listening to 3CR Breakfast and a warning that the next segment discusses trauma and sexual violence which may be upsetting for some listeners. It also contains language that might offend. If you feel this is not right for you at the moment please feel free to tune out for the next 15 minutes and if you need someone to speak to you can contact Lifeline 131114 Q Life on 1800 184527, the National Domestic Family and Sexual Violence Counselling Service 1800 Respect or Triple Zero. So we're now going to talk about Slut Walk, the global event calling for an end to slut shaming, victim blaming and sexual violence culture. The NAM Melbourne Slut Walk takes place on Saturday the 25th of November at State Parliament. For listeners who might be new to Slut Walk, the movement started in Canada in 2011 after offensive comments by a Toronto police officer who advised women that they could avoid rape by not dressing like sluts. With the simple message that clothes don't cause rape, Slut Walk spoke to a whole generation of young women who were tired of being blamed for the actions of others or told that responsibility for preventing rape rested squarely on their shoulders. Slut Walks have since taken place worldwide, including annually in Nam, Melbourne, for the past 12 years. 
Sasha Sidek from 3CR's Queering the Air spoke to longtime Slut Walk volunteer Meth about the event and why it's important to speak up about sexual violence. Let's take a listen. The word slut, you know, slut walk, mm-hmm. is there's a lot of stigma attached to it, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that also um, empowering at the same time because when I f- I first saw slut walk, um, I think I, um, it's not from Canada, but I think it's in America where um, yeah. um, I think her name was Rose. I think Amber Can- Rose. Amber Rose. I think it. it got a bad name because of that. Oh, because is it? People were a little bit upset oh. about um, the way that it was run, and I think yeah. there were a lot of things that were they were like you had to pay. Oh to, no to, way! Yeah, it was it was very strange. Right? Okay, they make I, it into a business. Yeah, okay. I, I heard a lot of bad things just because people were associated associating right, right, it right. with that. Okay, so I didn't know. I didn't make any research. I just saw that mm. um, she did a walk for Slut Walk, and I yep. thought it was a bit empowering at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, and then when I saw that there was one here. And I unfortunately I just found out maybe that time in 2018, and then I just messaged my girlfriend and said like, "Would you want to walk with me with about on this?" And you know what, they didn't even um, said no. They just like, "Yeah, let's do it." Yeah. And that for me it was very empowering uh, because my girlfriend would just say yes without you know hesitate about yeah. it because I know that time around 2018, you know, sex workers are are getting a bit more recognized. Um, yeah. I mean like. Um, Especially with the trans uh, activists um, who are celebrities, who are actresses, and they talk about sex work, and then and people are start starting to um, to embrace uh, for being who they are, and start to embrace sex work, start to embrace uh, yeah their body shape. It's about um, 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 embrace themselves. Yeah, so it was still new, particularly new, and you know I didn't think that people would want to be on board with me, and I totally understand why people still, you know, um, don't know if it's, if it's a good image for me to walk at Slut Walk because there's a lot of stigma attached to it. Yeah. So, but I'm glad I did. Yeah, <laughs> it changed me. It's definitely a controversial name, Mm-mm. but uh, there's the little slogan: "It's a controversial name, yeah. but not a controversial message." That's it. Because that's the point. It's yeah, about yeah. you know caring for other people and. Respecting people. <laughs> yeah, of, of course. I mean, you know, as like from that onwards, I believe, right, if you um, acknowledge or you know, you take back that power, no one can ruin you. Like, mm. let's say when someone like to make fun of your body figure and said that you're fat. I used to be that person. I mean, people always make fun of me, of my body figure and said, uh, you're fat. And it does affect me so badly, yeah. especially with my mental health. And, you know, and then you, you try to be so skinny, which, you know, your body type, you just can't get skinny yeah. at all. Yeah. So, um, and then I starve myself. I also substance abuse just to get skinny. Yeah. And I can't get to there um, I'm always been very curvy, yeah. And some people just curvy is not fat, okay. <laughs> but they just see me as fat, and uh, and it does affect me. And I did, I got like body dysphoria as well at that time. Yeah. So and then I start to embrace. It's like I am fat. Now what? What are you gonna do about it? Mm-hmm. I am a slut. Now what are you gonna do about it? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and definitely um, curvy people and fat people and what, however you want to identify, yeah. um, they do 
get disproportionately called a slut or, mm. or told that they're wearing things that are inappropriate yes. when they're just wearing the same things that other people are wearing. 100%. But I mean, they can't get away with it. Yeah. I mean, like, you're so right on this because I used to be so insecure wearing, like, you know, lycra outfits, like a dress and really, really short. And people just call me a slut. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I wear that to nightclub and thinking these guys think that I'm down for a yeah, I'm not. It's yeah. just why that skinny girl wearing the same dress and she does. Why they didn't see her as, uh, you know, thing that she is uh, DTF. Yeah, why, yeah. Why she's me? not. She's because not getting I'm, sexualized as much yeah. as you are. Yeah. So you know, um, yeah. This is yeah. Is flashing back right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's taking you back yeah, to that yeah, time. Yeah. And you know, I used to, and then I just threw away all those dresses because I just feel like I've been sexualized all the time. Yeah. And then, you know, slowly, slowly from, like I said, 2018, um, where I start to embrace um, my figure again and, you know, and my confidence um, there again. And I think um, now the society, I see a lot of, especially the, the younger generation, they don't give an F. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing, isn't it? They just wear what they want. I don't care what you're going to say about how this is me. This is my fashion. You, if you don't like it, that's the door. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Yeah. I think Gen Z is just yes. very inspirational. <laughs> I 100% agree with this. Gen Z is fierce. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to mess, mess around with them. I mean, like, I love that because with my generation, um, maybe even older generation, there's, we are always have to listen to patriarchy. And um, yeah. they tell us how we should live our life. And yeah. no more. Gen Z, salute to you because I'm following your footsteps. Yeah, they're breaking through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, let's talk about this slut walk. I mean, this uh, March uh, is going to be on next Sunday. Oh, no, next Saturday. Oh, sorry. 25th. 25th, yeah. Oh, my God. Why are you thinking it was, like, next week? They, they... Oh, I think you're thinking of when you were helping us with organising. Yeah! We originally wanted to do it on the 11th, and yes. then we realised it was Remembrance Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we yeah. had to change the date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To... Okay, cool. So um, 25th November. I think that's just Thanksgiving Day too, right? We will be good. We can thank each other. Thanks, Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also falls in the um, the... Uh, elimination of violence against women oh, and perfect. the 12 days of activism ah, I think yeah, 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 so yeah. It, it turns out to be a really great yeah. date <laughs> did, did you brainstorm on this with the date we didn't we realized <laughs> as we had we chose yeah. choosing that date that it actually worked really well oh amazing because I think at 3 as well is a big um um uh advocate for that 12 days of uh activism for yeah. um yeah uh for sexual violence and family violence violence every violence so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it's all connected it's as all well. connected yeah. yeah yeah awesome so um tell me how um you got into slut walk in the first place um so I was like you a little bit earlier on. First mm. time I heard about Slut Walk, I, I didn't get involved straight away. I heard about it in 2011. I had a lot of things I need to unpack and unlearn. Yeah. And so I was just being very cynical and like, oh, why would I want to dress like a slut and walk down the street? Uh, yeah. And then I sort of, I went through everything I had to go through. I had to go to the court and get an intervention order against somebody. Oh, wow. And I started to do therapy and really sort of, unlearn some of that societal conditioning Mm. and so that was 
uh, around 2015 or 2016, I started to attend the walks and was really feeling empowered. And I got really into the idea of consent. Um, And I started, I even made some little cute little consent cards with tips about, about consent on them and handed them out at the slut walk just, just for fun um, or you know, to make a difference. And yeah, then I got involved in 2017 and um, just loved the people that I was working with. So I kept doing it from there. Yeah. And did you go on your own or did you have a team of friends? Yeah, I, um, my best friend was living with me okay. and we started to go to it together. Yeah. We also started um, volunteering together. Yeah. I, um, you know what, like I said, Slutwalk has empowered me. I mean, um, I've been living in like a lot of fear. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of fear of, especially being trans as well, a lot yeah. of fear of people not... Um, believing in you, yeah. And I've I've been in this situation before, where you know, at a very young age, where um, I have to deal with my perpetrator, and I told somebody, and they didn't believe me, yeah, because I'm trans, and and you know, and um, and they think that oh, because of the way I dress, um, this is why um, you you got what you you. you God, I yeah. mean, I don't want to use that R word, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and um, and then from that onwards, I just feel like a lot of things that happened to me, especially when I was doing sex work as, as well. People always think like, you know, being R is when you know you got beaten up, um, and you know, being R. Mm. But no, sometimes but there like, are so many different so ways, many different yeah. ways, especially when your client didn't pay you for your service and yep. it was that's not consensual and we've been in that situation many times yeah and we didn't report them the problem is because we feel like the police won't believe us yeah um because there's always being uh, a sex worker there's always like stigma and there's always shame there's always judgment yeah and you know and um, yeah, so that's why we've been silenced for a very long time. I think um, being this having slug walk uh, uh, march, I think you actually can um, change people. I mean, like, you know, yeah. um, to empower a lot of especially women who in being in that situation and, you know, can speak up. Like yeah. they said, speak up, even your voices shake. So, yeah. yeah. So a lot of the women now tend to speak up a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and giving a sort of platform mm. and a voice to women and non-binary people as well that have been disproportionately yeah. affected by these things, mm. you know, like trans women, disabled women, yeah. um, all different, you know, um, especially Aboriginal women are disproportionately yeah. represented in yeah. um, sexual violence statistics and, you know, we want to make sure that everybody everybody can speak up. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I also been, you know, um, advocating for slut walk, I mean, like, within my own community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, like, you need to go for that walk because it does empower um, every person that I ask them to go and they come back to me and say that, yeah, it empowered them and they want to do more and they want to speak up. Suddenly, they become an activist. <laughs> 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 it's true. I mean... Yeah. Um, a lot of them are, you know, they always shy. You know, they they just think that being silenced because you know, because there's too much work of of even speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. But I said like, no, women are in control now. You know, mm-hmm. um, th- it's a revolution now. 
I said, this is why a lot of the patriarchies are threatened by women. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's why they try so hard to silence yeah. us. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and look look at what's happening. Even like, you know, celebrities, like, let's say, um, what's uh, that um, lady in Canberra who was R by... I forgot her name. She, Talking she was, about Brittany Higgins? Yes, that's yeah. it. I think she's very inspiring as well yeah, because absolutely. you know what? She's, she spoke up. Yeah, yeah, and that would be so hard to do because Definitely. like every workplace obviously is going to cause you like um, fear and intimidate you yes. to speak up but especially something like parliament <laughs> yeah definitely can you imagine because there's so many white men there and yeah. you know you have to fight with every each one of them yeah yeah and you know what salute to her because um she did great i yeah. mean like she lost so much but she gained so much at the same time yeah but i think um this is why slut walk um that is what slut walk is all about, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about empowering women, especially. I think every gender, but like I said, I mean woman because, you know, we've been going through a lot. Yeah. And we've been silent for a very long time. And I think slut walk, go, you need to march, girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely for everyone, but the word slut has been used historically. Yeah. Specifically about women. And that was Sasha Sidek from 3CR's Queering the Air speaking to Slutwalk volunteer Mev about this year's event and how they became involved. Mev is a neurodivergent queer creative and activist living and working on stolen Wurundjeri land who believes in the importance of continuously learning and improving and valuing human rights. Mev's focuses include consent, education, intersectional feminism, anti-racism, decolonisation, LGBTQIA plus rights, the decriminalisation of sex work, accessibility and mental health. Queering the Air broadcasts live on 3CR Airwaves every Sunday 3pm to 4pm and you can listen to the rest of the interview by visiting the program webpage or via the community radio app. The interview first aired on November 5th. And you can join Slut Walk Nam Melbourne on Saturday the 25th of November 2023. Meet outside the State Library Victoria at 12pm to hear speakers from diverse backgrounds followed by a march through the CBD. There will be Auslan interpreters at the event. And also a note that Trans Awareness Week runs on November 13th to the 19th and you can find out more about that at www.tdor.org.au If anything in this segment has caused distress for you or if you need to speak with someone for support you can contact Lifeline 131114 QLife on 1800 184 527 and the National Domestic Violence and Sexual Violence Counselling Service, 1800 Respect. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Music from the wetlands on the banks of the Yarra River in Elfington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. 
Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kutcher Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats. Food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elfington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it. More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. And you are back on 3CR 855 AM this morning, this lovely Wednesday morning. Uh, before we get to our new guest, uh, just be aware this interview will be discussing road trauma. So if you do not feel like you want to listen to it, you can turn off the radio and come back at 8.30. Anyway, let's move on now. We'll be speaking with lecturer in planning and human geography at La Trobe University, Julia Gilbert. Uh, she recently written an article on the conversation titled Our Children are Victims of Road Violence. We need to talk about the deadly norms of car use. Julia, good morning. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? Very good, thank you. Firstly, Julia, how alarmed are you by the number of deaths that have happened globally from cars? And I'll just read this out for listeners so they're aware. It's 1.3 million people have died in road accidents every year and 50, more, 50 million more are injured. This is the leading cause of death for children and young people. Why? Why is this, Julia? Is it is it due to is it just due to the roads we're having, or is it individual drivers, or is it is it a mixture of everything? It is a system wide issue, Patrick. It's a mix of everything, but uh, it is um, mainly the result of the choices we've been having in terms of how we plan our cities, um, how we think about our transport, how we think about mobilities. So it is a structural problem, um, but it is a direct outcome of our um, deeply entrenched car dominated culture, really. Yeah, and is that something you've argued in your article? You've said that we should reduce speed limits for cars to be close to the average speeds of walking, so six kilometres per hour, the accepted speed in most holiday parks, or cycling at 15 slash 20 kilometres per hour. Um, Where could you see that being implemented in terms of which roads that that could be used? Look, that's the one dimension of what we can do. Um, and I argued in that article as well, like, first thing we need to do is just, like, stop treating this kind of incidents that we saw in Bayswood, for example, as accidents. They are not accidents. Uh, they are the results of our choices uh, that we've been making for decades. And if you want to reverse uh, these trends, there's so many things we can do uh, in terms of how we, again, design skis and, and how we um, reclaim the spaces we give to the car. So the speed thinning is a very, very effective strategy to do that uh, because we know um, the risk of uh, someone getting hurt, someone being uh you know, dying is just like increases significantly as the uh, as speed uh, increases. So we know we can't really mix um, fast moving these heavy cars with people walking and cycling or sitting. It just doesn't work. We really have to do something about that. And speed limits, like there's there's a whole campaign at the moment, um, like in South Australia, uh, in in New South Wales, to reduce the speed limits, like make the default. Uh, residential street uh, speed limit um, 30 kilometers an hour. Um, we know even 30 is really fast, but we really have to have that conversation. Like we have to have that default, and then um, 
consider where we can just have even slower speeds, like school zones. That's that's mm. my background. I've been working with schools. Like uh, we still allow very very fast cars around our schools. So it's really unsafe and unless we do something about that, we're going to continue seeing this kind of tragedies, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. I think something that's quite interesting with that as well is the the type of vehicles that are being used now, Julia. Now, for example, I, I see in the city a lot of the times that we're seeing a lot more. Okay, you got trade workers and the likes who've got the you know the youths and and the like, which has been been a thing that's been over you know over the generations. But now I'm seeing the lifestyle car really being used as well. That type of pickup truck yeah. and listeners will be aware of that 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 ram or a ford ranger type car which in all honesty even i'm driving along going well that's a bit too big for uh, for melbourne's yeah. roads you know what i mean Julia? it just seems to me like that that type of car is quite dangerous in terms of visibility and especially when you come to an intersection or come to a stop and you've got to look around you go left you go right mm-hmm. to make sure you can give way and do all the correct things as you get mm-hmm. taught when you when you when you go for your license um, I think that kind of gets lost in the whole sense of buying these type of cars. Yeah, absolutely. The, our cars are getting bigger. And we know that, like, I'm an average size person. And, and when I'm crossing a road, then I see two of those Toyota Hilux or, you know, similar cars. Mm. I feel really intimidated. I feel really, really unsafe. Just imagine a child. I mean, we've been seeing some pictures um, on the internet, like a little child in front of the you know, the parents' car is one of those big cars. It's just zero in uh, visibility, really. It's just um, amazing how they allow that kind of uh, huge machines uh, just to freely, like, speed uh, in our neighbourhoods. And, and there's a reason, like, Australia is one of the worst countries in terms of the number of uh, children walking and cycling to school. So these are not personal choices, really. Like, people don't have a choice. Traffic, traffic danger is a huge thing. Um, and, yeah, unless we do something about um, how big our cars, how fast they can go and where they can go, um, these trends will only uh, get worse. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you think there should be also a bit more of a crackdown, and this comes back to the individual uh, choices as well of that driver, do you think there should be a crackdown on on poor driving? Like, do you think, the I know the police do their best, you would say, in terms of trying to halt these things, and they, you know, they put the best public messaging out there they can do with the TAC in, in conjunction with Road Safety mm-hmm. Australia and the, and the likes. Do you, do you think there should be a bit more of a, a crackdown on this in terms of the individual driver? Do you think they could they could go, right, well, you've got to go back and do your license every, let's say, two to three years? Like, I know it's an idea that I, I keep thinking in my head, if they, everyone did their license every two years, there might be this situation of people less likely to be irresponsible, or do you think that wouldn't, wouldn't work in, in modern society now? I think um, we could definitely uh, reassess uh, how we um, uh, issue our driver's licenses because I think in in Australia it is so much easier to get a driver's license compared to some other countries. Mm. Um, But uh, having 
a focus like that will only be a very small part of the solution because it, it won't match the scale of the problem we are facing. Yes, we can definitely look at that. That's one dimension. But the main thing we need to do is just recognize that this is a system-wide issue. Individualistic um, solutions are not going to be effective. So we really have to um, start questioning that privileged status of our uh, uh, of the car in our daily lives and in our um, daily spaces and we can't we can't do this overnight obviously um, because we built these cities around cars for half a century now more than mm. half a century so it's gonna take a while uh, to reverse that but um, we know what we need to do we really do like one of the most effective things is just having a look at um our budgetary allocations for active transport and public transport, they've been neglected um, really badly, um, you know, uh, since, since the Second World War. Um, we really have to try uh, to make those up options which are safer, which are healthier, more sustainable, viable um, options, because they are not. They can't compete against um, cars at the moment. Um, you really have to do something about that. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it can even be highlighted today. Um, you know, we've seen a massive outage with Optus and uh, the the Metro train service, which runs through Optus mm. with the communications have all gone down. So all the lines uh, are down. So, you know, if you're one who wants to catch the train, um, you know, you're, you're waiting a longer time and, mm-hmm. and the likes. And, for example, um, you know, even for the outer suburb train lines, they're very much forgotten about in terms of trying to get to the city. And I think that's where people take the easy route and go, I'll get in the car and I'll drive, instead of, you know, catching the train from a, from Packenham Station or Sunbury Station, for example. And I think that's where people get quite disappointed by it because, you know, mm-hmm. something I find interesting, you know, you go to New South Wales, for example, you go to Sydney, it's a bigger train culture, and I don't know if you know the plan. The planning that went into the train system in Sydney, uh, Julio, is a lot more efficient, but also too, it's a bit more sustainable in terms of what they're developing. And and three, and three just seems to me like it, it works. While here in Melbourne, it's almost like our train system is so backward in the way it's built and planned. And I, I want your take on that, Julio. What do, what do you think could be the op- the solution to that as well? Absolutely. I mean, there are some amazing transport uh, planning researchers they've been arguing about those things. I'll I'll let them to answer what needs to be done. But mm. oh, we know for sure that um, our public transport is not uh, really at the level that we expect from a city like Melbourne uh, in the 21st century. But then again, it's a direct uh, result of the neglect um, that has been uh, uh, subject to, um, uh, like a public transport has been subject to this so much we can do. But again, uh, it, what you said just touches on like, um, how people make those decisions about uh, what transport modes they are going to use unless we make public transport or walking, cycling as um, easy as driving we are not going to see any behaviour change So, um, and most of the time people think that all oh, people have a right to drive and they prefer to drive it's not the case at all so most of the time when we look at um, this uh, kind of um, behavior, decision-making processes we see. Um, there's a forced car ownership, for example. That's a really, really uh, effective term to explain that. Like people don't mm. have a choice, but they have to have a car. It is, it is a tool 
that you must have uh, to function, you know, your daily life. So that's how bad our problem with uh, car dependence is. Like most of the time, if you don't have a car or if you don't have someone to drive you, you're really, really disadvantaged, which, which is a problem. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's quite fascinating in that in that sense, Julia, because you know you meet someone who doesn't have a car. You kind of go, "Oh, do you have your license?" "Oh no, you, yeah. we need to, we need you to get here on this time and this day," you know. And oh, will you be able to catch the bus or will you be able to catch the train? And a lot of times, mm-hmm. those people are, are pretty good in terms of working it out, and also are quite better in time management. Just quietly between me and you, you, Julia, in my in my own world, I know for a fact that I made sure if I need to catch the train somewhere I know what time I've got to be there and the likes do, do you think do you think another issue as well which you, you might be um, able to just give us a bit of an insight as well do you think that the ticketing system especially in Melbourne which with which has been very much discussed and the, the whole Mikey scenario and listeners will know you know the Mikey card has been a well discussed issue and it's right do you think that introduction of that system, you know, back 10, nearly 12 years ago, do you think that's what scared off commuters in, in the first sense? And then also the fact that, that the train system in Melbourne just wasn't functioning, mm-hmm. as you said, up to the 21st century standards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a student uh, who just uh, finished the research project uh, on these like public transport issues and he touched on the uh, ticketing issues as well. Like, um, like because public transport has a, um, a very bad reputation in the minds of so many people because it is hard, it is inconvenient, like, you know, the time you have to spend uh, to get to your uh, closest public transport uh, stop and, and the ticket you need to get, all these things, <clears throat> excuse me, really um, uh, maintain the image of public transport being really hard, really complicated, really inconvenient. And and one of the things my student and I were uh, dis- uh, discussing was like that ticketing system, like even like simple things like um, like when you are uh, on, on, on a bus and when you have to touch on and touch off and on the tram, you don't have to. These kind of things confuse people. Like yeah, definitely. It doesn't have to be that complicated. You can do so much better than this. And in terms of where you um, have access to a machine to just top up your Mikey card and things like that, again, that we really have to deal with that image of public transport being really, really uh, like a slow and complicated process. Um, yeah, ticketing is a big, big issue. Yes, yes, it is definitely. And, you know, we'll keep looking into this space in the coming 12 months and 18 months to come. But Julia, we've just run out of time. I really appreciate uh, talking to you about this issue. And uh, just for the listeners before I let you go, where can we find your work? And also, um, if they want to continue reading on the conversation, where can they go? Absolutely. So if they can search my name, Julia Gilbert, uh, at Latrop University. So there's a list of uh, my publications there. Or they can just send me an email. So I'm very happy to share um, any of the articles I've been writing on this issue. But yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's okay, Julia. It's an important issue and we'll uh, keep discussing it in the weeks and months to come here on 3CR. And that was Julia Gilbert, lecturer in planning and human geography at La Trobe University. And uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting space in here. Like you know, catching the train is is becoming less uh, favourable for driving the car. Hmm. Um. What a coincidence that I drove today. I'm I'm very glad <laughs> yeah. about that. It's first time driving here instead of using 
um, the tram or, or the or public transport, which I do use. But um, yeah, it's it's really like I don't know what to say. That like the whole um, system just shut down, and um, yeah, really. I uh, but yeah, for updates on other areas or like other events that are coming up this is kind of in another route but um coming up this sunday also like the previous weeks there's going to be another palestine rally um on the 12th of november this sunday uh in front of the state library so um you know if you can make make it to that that would be great to show solidarity with palestinians or also tune into palestine remembered which is the only palestinian radio show in australia which is um you know yeah uh aired in 3cr saturday 9 30 a.m yes saturday 9 30 yeah um but yeah thank you all for listening and um stay tuned for next week Yes, tune in next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.